Well, I'm going to try to, <clears throat> with the Lord's help, do the impossible this morning, trying to get through the rest of um, Japheth and uh, his uh, narrative. So uh, hold on to your hats. We'll see if we can get through that. <clears throat> but um, last week I, I left you with a non-traditional view of uh, Jephthah's uh, vow with God as it pertains to his daughter. And I also said that I was leaning toward that interpretation, but I was by no means being dogmatic about that. And um, as the saying goes, um, that's not a hill I choose to die on. Um, but uh, I said that many good men, having read the same verses, came to different conclusions. So before we jump into today's lessons and continue on, I thought I might uh, interject here um, uh, and take a look at uh, what some of these other men had to say about uh, this difficult passage. Uh, and then we would proceed on with today's lesson. Um, <clears throat> again, the traditional interpretation of this vow, um, it says, Then it shall be that whatsoever cometh from the, Lord, from the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the ch children of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now that's the view that I have held since I was a youth, uh, that I, I believe that uh, uh, Jephthah had probably killed his daughter and offered her up as a burnt offering. And like I said, I've begun to change my mind on that position. Uh, however, um, Barnes' notes on the Bible, Gill's exposition of the Bible, and Keel and Deltowitz's uh, biblical commentary on the Old Testament all hold to that traditional view. Um, so that's just a few of them that I reference here. Adam Clark's commentary again repeats the, the uh, verse, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the children of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's and I will offer it up a burnt offering. But then he quotes two verses. He says, shall surely be the Lord, and I will offer up for a burnt offering. And then he proceeds to write this out in the Hebrew uh, text. And I don't read Hebrew, and I don't speak Hebrew. <coughs> so this is what he had to say. According to the most accurate Hebrew scholars, these verses can be interpreted as, I will consecrate it to the Lord, or I will offer it for a burnt offering. That is, if it is a thing fit to, as a burnt offering, it shall be made one. If it's fit for service of God, it shall be consecrated to him. That's how he, the scholars have interpreted this. <coughs> Uh, he goes, uh, Adam Clark goes on to say that conditions of this kind must have been implied in the vow is evident enough. To have been made without them, it must have been the vow of a heathen or a madman. If a dog had met him, this could not have been made a burnt offering. And if his neighbor or friend's wife, son or daughter, etc., 
had been returning from a visit to his family, his vow gave his vow gave him no right over them. Besides, human sacrifices were ever an abomination to the Lord. End of quote. That's Adam Clark's commentary. Uh, the pulpit commentary on homiletics, uh, A.F. Muir writes, and I think he's trying to impress us with his scholarly vocabulary here, so I'll try to interpret what he's trying to say here. What is involved has been much disputed. But the wording of the vow certainly admits of an interpretation consistent with the highest humanity. The object expressed neutrally as being more comprehensive, but there is a distinction introduced into the consequent member of the sentence which shows the regard it has to a dual possibility, the Hebrew word viz. So what he's saying is that there's two possibilities of interpreting it, this. A personal uh, position and an impersonal position. Um, if, <clears throat> if the object is personal, then he or she was to be Jehovah's. So it would have read, whomever comes out my door, he or she will. That would be the personal choice. There's an impersonal one that he reads into here, and that's how it is written. Whatever comes out my door, it will be given. So he says this Hebrew word viz uh, gives uh, those um, uh, possibilities. Um, he goes on and, and writes, uh, if the object is personal, he or she was to be Jehovah's, an expression unnecessary if it was to be made a burnt offering and which would only mean dedicated to perpetual virginity or priesthood. If object is perhaps in, impersonal, like an animal, he would offer it up for a burnt offering. He bears out this, that his daughter asked for two months to uh, bewail her virginity. The inference with this is imperative. It was not death, but perpetual virginity to which she was devoted. The Garner Howell Baptist Commentary starts off, quote, the age-long question comes again. Did Jephthah give his daughter as a burnt sacrifice? Great Bible students have come down on both sides of the question, and it will never be settled unless the Lord settles it in eternity. The Hebrew original, which is translated, I will offer it up for a burnt offering, might have been translated also, I will offer it up as a burnt offering or like a burnt offering. That is wholly given to the Lord like a burnt offering was given. Also note that it was an offering and not a sacrifice. It would seem that Jephthah's daughter was given as a lifelong servant of the tabernacle who could not be married. Therefore, she could never marry and bear children. And for this, she wailed for there were such dedicated women serving the tabernacle uh, as we see in 1 Samuel 2.22. But I end this um, with our good friend Matthew Henry. I think he probably sums it up the best. This is not a heaven or hell, is it? Okay. Um, 
good men have, have different opinions on this. Um, so this is what Matthew Henry had to say. It is hard to say what Jephthah did in performance of his vow, but it is thought that he did not offer his daughter as a burnt offering. Considering this and some other such passages in the sacred history about which learned men are divided and in doubt, we need not perplex ourselves. So he said, don't worry about it. What is necessary is our salvation. Thanks be to God, it is plain enough. If the reader recollects the promise of Christ concerning the teaching of the Holy Spirit and places himself under this heavenly teacher, the Holy Ghost will guide us to all truth in every passage, so far as it's needful to be understood. So Matthew Henry kind of says, you know, what's important is that our salvation has been revealed to us, how that salvation has come about through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's very clear and unambiguous. Other passages like this may not be as important. So that's kind of a, a summary of where certain people are coming down on this passage. I, any comments or thoughts from what I've read here? Judges 5.11. Well, I'll get, you're, you've already done my lesson. I appreciate that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been abomination is what it would have been. Abomination is what it would have been. I, um, I'm even going to go a little bit further than that and say I'm not so sure it was a rash vow. I think Jephthah had... 
right. I think he had something in mind, which I'm going to cover here in a, in a little bit. But I think he did it with a purpose in mind. I don't necessarily think it was just off the top of his head either one. But I think the, the Lord used that as a way of correcting and reproving him. Uh, so I think you're right. I think the Spirit of the Lord uh, put that there for, for a reason. Good, good conversation, thanks. <clears throat> when uh, studying scripture, and in particular difficult passages uh, such as this, we can't forget context. You've heard that repeated here quite frequently. Uh, not only uh, what is meant uh, by context, looking at verses before or after the passage that you're considering, but it is also important that we look at who the author is writing to. Uh, we also have to consider what is the history uh, of those who are being written about. And we also have to look at some of their customs and cultural traditions uh, of the people in order for us to wrap our modern minds around what's being said and what's being written. So when we come across difficult passages like this, we just can't breeze through it, we have to also look at some of these other contextual problems and uh, explore some of them. And <clears throat> so as we proceed, I will attempt to give some of this context as we read further in the book of Judges. So <clears throat> last week, I, I left off with a question. Why the first person who comes out the, uh, of the door of my house? Why... <clears throat> Uh, was that important? And there is a specific reason for this. And again, this <laughs> tells us much of what Jephthah had in mind, I think, and why he mourned um, when it turned out to be his only child that came out through the doorway. So, <laughs> there, <clears throat> this is where the custom and cultural traditions play into the context. Quite often, doors of the house in Scripture symbolize birth. And again, our modern minds it may not make much sense to us, so I'm going to offer some uh, Scripture verses here to uh, kind of make that connection. Uh, they correspond to the doorway of a woman's body where the baby is born. Um, so in Genesis 8.10, it is while standing in the doorway of her tent that Sarah fears she will have a child. 1 Samuel 1.19, Hannah is standing in the doorway of the temple when she hears that she will have a child. In 2 Kings 4.15, the Shunammite woman is standing in the doorway when she's told that she will have a son. In a reverse order, maybe like a stillborn child, Eli hears that God will have killed his sons from Samuel, who is standing in the doorway of the tabernacle. And Jeroboam's wife is crossing the threshold of the house, both when she hears that her child will die in 1 Kings 14, and also when her child does die under God's judgment in the same chapter. At the Exodus... When Israel came out through the doorways which were covered in the Lamb's blood, they, in effect, 
experienced a new birth. They had a rebirth from slavery to freedom. And they had a spiritual rebirth provided to them by their merciful Heavenly Father. Also, Jesus calls himself the door and says those who go through him find salvation and a new birth. John 10, 9. So the first person to come through Jephthah's door after the battle then is kind of a firstborn of his house after the battle had been fought. Thus, it establishes a new era, a new phase for his family. Sacrificing the firstborn is a way of establishing his kingly house and his dynasty. So how do we know that? Because the firstborn is a symbol for the entire household. When God passed judgment at the Exodus, he struck at the house of Egypt and Israel by threatening the firstborn. The firstborn is the right hand of the father, his principal heir. This person gets the double portion of the inheritance and is a representative and spokesman of the family. The sacrifice of the firstborn as a substitute for the family was the salvation for the rest of the family. By offering up the firstborn, the rest of the family would survive. But human beings are defiled by sin and un an unacceptable sacrifice, as Dale mentioned. Thus, the Lamb of Passover substituted for the firstborn. At the same time, God claimed the firstborn of Israel at his own from that day forth. Exodus 13, 2 and 12. Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belong to me whether human or animal. You are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb and the first firstborn male of your livestock before the Lord. And Numbers 8.17 says, Every firstborn male in Israel, whether human or animal, is mine. When I struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, I set them apart for myself. So when the firstborn failed to serve God and built a golden calf as a false idol, God substituted the Levites for them in Numbers 8, 15, and 16. After you have purified the Levites and presented them as a wave offering, they are to come to do their work in the tent of meetings. They are the Israelites who are to be given wholly to me. I have taken them as my own in place of the firstborn, the first male offspring from every Israelite woman. But notice here that the Levites were not killed, but they served at the tabernacle. And I believe this could be a parallel with Japheth's daughter. <coughs> the sacrifice of the firstborn is the foundation for the building of a house. Not just a physical house, but the family. 
Among the pagans, killing children at the doorway and building the house on their graves was not uncommon. Uh, a lot of uh, infants have been found at um, buildings, particularly among the Canaanite ruins, um, where they were sacrificed. We see an example of this in 1 Kings uh, 16 and 34, where Hiel uh, killed his firstborn son when he laid the foundation for the rebuilding of Jericho. So the death of the firstborn was designated to satisfy the wrath of the false gods to ensure peace of the city. We know that this is only <coughs> it is only the death of Jesus Christ, the first begotten Son of the Father, that is an adequate foundation for the new Jerusalem, the city of God. So this is one of the reasons why the firstborn after the battle uh, was important. Who was it and, and, uh, and what was it symbolizing? There's more to uh, this as well having to do with what is called the basic victory house building pattern that we find in the Bible. First, a battle is fought against an enemy. After the enemy is defeated, the triumphant king returns and builds a house, a physical house and or a dynasty. The spoils of the enemy are used to build that house. But the death of the firstborn was also required. You might say the whole book of Exodus kind of follows that example. Egypt is defeated. When the Israelites come out of Egypt, they carry the spoils of Egypt with them. These spoils are used to build God's house. And we notice there was an abundance of blood sacrifice uh, made when the uh, connection of the building of, of, of the temple. In addition to the Passover sacrifice, which underlays it all, which substituted the death of the firstborn. So similarly, it is when David was finally completely victorious over his enemies. The Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. It was then and only then that he moved to build the temple, 2 Samuel. This, of course, reaches its fulfillment in the work of in the death of um, Jesus Christ, um, whose defeat of Satan at the same time was a foundational sacrifice resulting in the creation of his house, the church. So it is possible that this is the way uh, Jephthah is thinking in this passage. He wants to establish a dynasty. He has won the victory with God's help. And now he offers the sacrifice of his firstborn, the firstborn uh, from the doorway uh, of his house after the battle. And I said, uh, I'm leaning toward that position. Uh, he vows to sacrifice this person to the Lord, I believe, to perpetual tabernacle service in exchange for the Lord uh, building his house, the dynasty of his kingship that he desires.
in itself, this is not an unreasonable request. We see in 2 Samuel 7 that David wants to build God's house. But God says that must wait for Solomon. But God goes on, however, to guarantee David a perpetual dynasty. In other words, God is building David's house, 2 Samuel 7, 12. So the question is, why didn't God do this for Jephthah? Because Jephthah was not the one God had in mind. And Jephthah should have known it. If this were a baseball game, Jephthah would have had three strikes on him before he even picked up the bat. He was an illegitimate person, and that required him to be excluded, strike one. He was not of the tribe of Judah, strike two. And God had not chosen him to be a king, but chose him to be a judge, strike three. Thus God acts to frustrate Jephthah's plans. Jephthah will consecrate to the tabernacle service the firstborn of his house, but it will be only his only daughter, and that will end any kingly and dynastic hopes that he might have had. Um, as he because she was going to be the only way that he was going to establish the dynasty through her children. I do find it kind of interesting how various writers of scripture involved uh, foreshadowing and types, and, and they offer these parallels for us to learn from. I found the parallels between Jephthah and David interesting. Both were exiled. Both gathered impoverished men around them. Both harassed the enemy for years. Both defeated the enemy and delivered Israel. The women sang and danced before them. Both aspired to build a house. But I probably believe that David's motives were a little bit more pure than Jephthah's. Or Jephthah's. So, again, going back and looking at cultural context, what some of these things mean uh, to try to clarify what we're talking about here. Any comments so far or thoughts on this before we jump into the new scripture here? I made comment last week, I think he was probably inclined of, of a servant. You know, he was expecting the servant to come out and help him with the animals, come out and with the spoils of war, and that, I think that was probably what he had in mind. But who knows what he had in mind, yeah. I don't know.
that's the position I think you would have in mind. Thank you. I'm not mind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, last week we talked about how well he knew about uh, the, the book of Numbers when he wrote his uh, six arguments against Ammon. So I believe he was versed on uh, scripture up to that point anyway. Lord is using that vow to reprove him. Yeah. Right. And that's how that's how God deals with Jephthah uh, in that regard. With dynasty, he removes her. Uh, she will not have children, and he will not have this kingship. He uses that vow to uh, to deal with Jephthah here. Well, if <laughs> open up your book to Judges. Uh, 11.34. 11.34. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was this his one and only child. Besides her, uh, had neither son nor daughter. And it came about when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought with me very low, and you are among those who trouble me. For I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. So the, <laughs> she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me according to what has been proceeded out of your mouth. Since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. And he said to her daughter, his, her father, uh, Let this thing be done uh, for me. Let me alone two months that I may walk about and go down to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. Then he said, Go. So he sent her away for two months. She left and her, with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. And it came about at the end of the two months that she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow which had made, she had made, and she knew no man. Thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went annually to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. From my perspective, this account of Jephthah is probably the hardest for me to understand in the book of Judges. I don't know about you. <coughs> Again, the main problem here is as I said earlier, it comes from the fact that all the basic elements in this story 
presuppose that we are familiar with uh, <clears throat> familiar with uh, certain fundamental ways of thinking that were common in the ancient medieval and early modern world, but that are completely unknown to us today. So it's difficult for us to wrap our minds around some of these things. Again, the custom and cultural context helps better understand this passage. I've already mentioned the victory house building patterns, the correspondence between doorways and birth, and the notion of the sacrifice of the firstborn as a foundation for the house or for a city. Now we come to several other strange notions, uh, which we also find hard to understand. Among them is the idea of going up to the mountains to mourn, and especially the idea of virginity and the sacrifice of virginity. And again, I'm the first one to say that I'm no expert on this matter, and I can only uh, study from wiser men than I am and try to share uh, what I've learned and understand with you the best I can. So... Um, you may have different points of view, and, and that's fine uh, as well. <clears throat> so as we look back at this passage I just read, after the victory of Jephthah's daughter came out to him dancing, it was customary for women to dance after a great victory as uh, we see Miriam dancing in Exodus 15:20, and the dance of the Israelite women after the death of Goliath. Apart from general joy and relief uh, at the defeat of the threat, there is a very specific reason for these celebrations, uh, which is revealed to us uh, in Jeremiah 31:4. It says, "I will build you up again, and you." Virgin Israel will be rebuilt. Again, you will take up your timbrel and go out to dance with the joyful. I believe the defeat of the enemy brings about peace and safety, particularly for the women, as we've seen in the last 10 days during conflicts, particularly in the Middle East, we see multiple women being attacked, raped, and murdered. <clears throat> and this is, I believe, part of the joy and celebration here that <clears throat> the women are less likely to be physically attacked. Uh, and so they make uh, a big deal of it through the celebration. And this also allows them to have a family and to have a house and to have children um, uh, if they're not... Uh, physically attacked. So that's part of this um, celebration, I believe. Jephthah's daughter, like her father, anticipates the building of a house. She is looking forward to a husband. She was looking forward to having children. Second, this passage stresses that she was Jephthah's only child. Any possible dynasty had to come through her his grandchildren. And we know that Jephthah was interested in a dynasty because he was anxious to be head of Gilead back in chapter 11, verse 9. 
The fact that she, of all people who met him, caused him anguish, for he realized that his personal hopes were now gone forever. Third, we see here that Jephthah's mourning was not some mild regret. He tore his clothes, which is an action which has specific symbolic meaning in the Bible. A covenant is a bond joining two or more people. When those two people are ripped apart, the covenant is also torn. Thus, for instance, in marriage, marriage is a covenant between a man and his wife, and they will become one flesh. And part of the ancient custom and tradition uh, back then was that there was a, a cloth wrapped around both husband and wife-to-be, symbolizing this oneness. We see this in Ruth 3.9 and in Ezekiel 16.8. The garment symbolized the covenant between the two. Now, death definitely rips two people apart. We know that what causes mourning and grief is the intense feeling of loss and separation caused by death. Death then rips apart the covenant that exists, whether formally or informally. You can have an informal covenant like in a friendship. It's not as close as it would be as a husband and wife, but there's still this covenant between friends. And if there's this separation, particularly by death, then, then you see that this uh, covenant has been ripped apart. Thus, the garment as a sign of the rendering of the covenant is most appropriate to mourning. And again, we see this examples in 2 Samuel 111, 13, 31, in the book of Ezra chapter 9. So Jephthah's mourning is cast in terms of the ripping of his daughter from him and the shredding of his house, his dynasty. He says he has brought him, uh, she has brought him very low. The Hebrew word means cause me to bow down. Now this word almost always is used for the bowing down of an enemy in terms of humiliation and defeat or in death. But it also is used for acts of respect, just bowing down. So Jephthah states that he is being forced to bow the knee, and I believe he's being forced to bow the knee to God's purposes. He, it's his daughter. There's not going to be any grandchildren. There's no dynasty. He's bowing his knee, saying, you know, God, you're in control I understand uh, what's going on here. His vow is what is being used to correct his behavior. So this is an act of yielding to what God now makes very clear to him, that he's to have no abiding house. Jephthah is met with a reversal of his hopes here. So this passage shows that the daughter submits to her father's vow before God, and only asks that she be given two months to roam around the mountains to bewail her virginity. I personally believe this would make no sense if she was about to be put to death. But it makes a lot of sense 
if she were about to be consigned to perpetual virginity in the tabernacle. So the whole point of having virginity is to submit it to the joys of marriage. The virgin in the Bible is usually the one who awaits the bridegroom. Jephthah's daughter mourns her virginity because she is now being torn from her future family and from any future husband that she might have. She takes her companions. More than likely, these would have been the friends that would have been her bridesmaid at uh, her wedding. And now they join her in mourning for what will never be. So up to this point, overall, there are some lessons from this passage Number one, that man's dynasties or houses may be cut short. They are not everlasting. But God's house, God's tabernacle or temple, endures for ages and ages. Jephthah's desire for any enduring house to his daughter must give way before the superiority of God's enduring house. Verse 40 is rather obscure and difficult to deal with. The verb in this verse is translated, as Pastor was talking about earlier, translated either lament or commemorate. But its actual meaning is closer to recount or communicate. And in as Pastor said, it only occurs one other place in Scripture, back in Judges 5.11. Most translators of Scripture assume that Japheth killed his daughter, so there was this slanting towards the translating of this word to commemorate. But if she was devoted to God in the tabernacle, it could mean that the young woman would come and visit her annually, and to recount or communicate with her. Thus, she would have established a type of ministry among the women of Israel. So let me try to conclude this whole thing here, and um, we'll move on to something new next time. Jephthah had hoped to build his own house and dynasty, This was not out of pure selfish motives, but he did it out of the goodness of his heart. He thought, as well as the rest of Israel thought, that in order to get the protection they needed, they needed to have a human king uh, in order to uh, protect Israel. So with the love of God in his heart, he believed that he was the one to establish such protection. He was wrong, for he disregarded the laws concerning illegitimate persons, and the prophecy that the king had to come from Judah. God gently reproved him to that vow that he made, and as a result, he also reproved the nation of Israel. Remember last week I said that he was kind of like a mirror uh, to Israel, uh, what he was kind of uh, reflected uh, what they were doing wrong as well. 
God might have said something like this. I mean, this is just the way I would think that he might have said something to Jephthah. Not your house, but my house must be built. I accept your sacrifice to your firstborn, but I have arranged it so that sacrifice will end your house and it will build mine. Your daughter will be continuing a continuing sign to my people that their safety depends uh, not on how well they guard themselves, but how well they guard their moral and spiritual adultery. Are you going to leave again? Are you going to reject me again? Are you going to seek other idols? This is what you will protect you if you stay close to me. And that will tell me how well you will guard my house. So in the end here, we see Jephthah bowed down to God's will and resumed his place as judge of Israel. Any thoughts or comments or questions? Well, if not, uh, Brother Dale, would you close us in prayer, please?